0: He says, I have good news and bad news. The good news is, I got it down to 10 commandments.
1: Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. My guest today is Russ Roberts. Russ is the John and Jean DeNault Research Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He is the host of the long-running podcast, Econ Talk and author of several books, including How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, An Unexpected Guide to Human Nature and Happiness. Russ, welcome to The Filter.
0: Great to be with you, man.
1: Great to have you here. The main topic for our conversation is what I've come to think of over the years of listening to econ talk as the epistemology of Russ Roberts. I want to dig into what I see as the main planks of that worldview and talk about how it was shaped. I think we need to begin with what may be your most used quote on your podcast. This comes slightly tweaked from F.A. Hayek's book, the Fatal Conceit. Hayek was one of the founders of the Austrian School of Economics, but he is perhaps most famous nowadays for his epic rap battle with John Maynard Keynes. <laughs> uh, a fight between reanimated economists that I believe you had a hand in putting together, no?
0: Yeah, I was the co-creator with John Popola, the filmmaker. We had a great time doing this.
1: Fantastic video. I recommend people go on YouTube and uh, and search for epic rap battle between Keynes and Hayek. At any rate, here is the quote. The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. Perhaps you could start us out with why that quote is so meaningful to you and your thoughts on the importance of doubt.
0: So, of course, that quote was... uh Written in the 1980s, when the, today I think Hayek would have said "people" instead of "men," but um, what he's saying in that quote is that the world's a complicated place, but it's our nature to try to simplify it. It's our nature to see causation. It's our nature to look for patterns, as Ed Lemur says, we are storytelling, pattern-seeking animals, and so we often simplify reality. We have to if we're going to make our way through it. And we look for models, frameworks, lenses to help filter the immense amount of information that comes to us. And Hayek's saying is that we don't do that so well. You know, it's, uh, economics reminds people of that complexity. And that complexity is what leads to the law of unintended consequences, that often legislation or policy achieves the opposite of what's intended, or certainly things that weren't intended. You can't just look at intentions and evaluating whether policy is good or bad. And I like to extend it to things like parenting. You know, I may want my kid to do a certain activity or I want to model certain behavior, but often that gets my kid to do the opposite. You know, my dad was a smoker. I've never had a cigarette in my mouth. It's, I found it so horrifying. He modeled smoking for me, but somehow he didn't get me to become a smoker. He didn't proselytize for it either, To be to be fair, but the point of hayek's quote is that how the world actually works is often veiled from us we don't anticipate all the effects of our actions and we should be aware of that
1: so in addition to how things uh, working being veiled there's also uh, what you talked about there or got at a little bit which is the what i consider the black box problem or the idea that you have something and the label on it says one thing but That doesn't necessarily tell you that that's what's inside of it. So we have the Affordable Care Act and people will point to it and say, look, the label says it's affordable care. That must be what's inside of it. But often it's not the case that the label is a perfect description of the contents. And the label is often not just a perfect description of the contents, but it's really just a... A desire, perhaps, or the label represents a hope as opposed to a reality of consequences. No,
0: or or worse, sometimes it's just marketing to try to make you think it's a a package you're going to like when you might not. Uh, My favorite example is actually the um, the tobacco settlement, which has some glorious name I'm going to ignore, but which I don't remember. But the point of the tobacco settlement, when the attorneys general uh, across the United States got together and sued the tobacco companies it was quote for the children. Uh, It was designed to, it was not, I don't know what it was designed to do, but it was defended as a way of raising money to help fight for children's health. It keeps them from being addicted and to cigarettes. And those are good two things I care a lot about. I care about children's health. And you can tell from my earlier remark, not big on children smoking. Um, What that law actually did was make cigarette companies more profitable. It, Cartelized, it turned their industry into a cartel. Made it extremely hard for them to have to compete with uh, to, for new entrants to come in and compete with cigarette companies. It allowed them to raise prices, so it put, did put a big tax on their product, which generated a lot of revenue and a lot of money for the attorneys who uh, worked on the project. But it uh, also allowed them to pass on the cost of that tax and a little bit more, which usually is really hard to do, but if you can get rid of the potential for new competitors, you can actually do that sometimes. So uh, one of the lessons of this this way of thinking is that, as you say, labels are often misleading, inaccurate, or worse, deceptive, you know, designed to make you think there's something that they're not. And, you know, we understand that in the economic marketplace, when someone, uh, it's maybe hard to remember, but when someone puts on their labeling, um, uh, some claim about some product being good for your love life or good for your health or good for your weight loss, you a natural skepticism, you realize the person selling it to you is trying to make money and maybe they're not a hundred percent honest all the time, but somehow often with government and, and some policy you just assume that the motivation is disc- accurate description. The description is an accurate, ca- accurately captures the motivation or the intention. And I, I take a more agnostic view. I, I'm not so interested in the intention. I'm worried. I'm more interested in the impact.
1: Right, and figuring out what that impact might be. I think perhaps part of the point of the Hayek quote is that that's difficult to figure out. I've heard you say on the podcast at times that human behavior or modeling human behavior is not like modeling physics. Yeah. How? How so?
0: I once had a physics, a friend of mine, a physicist asked me whether economists knew anything. And he was a serious question. Um, I was kind of taken aback by it. I said, well, like, what do you mean? He said, well, do they know anything? You know, they make predictions." I said, well, sure. We know things like uh, if you put a tax on cigarettes, people will smoke fewer of them. And he said, well, that's obvious. Well, fair enough. I guess that's kind of clear that the idea that people do less of something when it gets more expensive. Maybe it's not such a deep insight. It's sometimes hard to remember, it's sometimes unpleasant to remember because uh, it can be frustrating for the various uh, policymakers. But I said, so what, what do you mean then? He said, well, like, like we can tell you where Mars is gonna be in 17 years, six months, three days and four hours and 10 minutes. I said, well, we're not so good at that. <laughs> there are two ways to think about why economics is different from physics. One is this sort of standard argument that uh, that the economic players have their own freedom of choice. An electron doesn't have a lot of freedom of choice. Mars doesn't have a lot of freedom of choice. But we are free to do, quote, whatever we want. Now, the economist, standard economist response to that is, Sure, we're free to do whatever we want, but when prices go up, we buy less of stuff generally. There, are, there might be somebody who keeps buying the same amount, but in general, people either buy less of it or they'll buy it less frequently. And that's, a, that's the standard economist response that we're, we're, we're like physics. But I, I'm more interested in, I think, the larger philosophical implications of those differences. The way I like to think about it is that it's not just that the human players in an economic system have their own motivations and choices, Part of it is just simply that a lot of that information is veiled from the analyst. Adam Smith said this best in uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. I'm not going to get the quote right, but the gist of it, he says, is that as he criticizes what he calls the man of system, a person who has a way of looking at the world that they want to make the world conform to, an ideology, a, a utopian vision. And he says, you know, it's like trying to move the chess pieces on a chessboard and being oblivious to the fact that they have their own motion. Right, So oftentimes we want to shuffle or or steer or be the puppeteers and the engineers and move things around as an economic policy. And what Smith is saying is that yeah, well, we ignore the fact that people have their own incentives, their own information, sometimes not available. This is also a Hayekian point, also not available to the decision maker or the policy maker. And I think that's the, the deeper insight relative to physics. It's not just that the pieces have their own motion that are just sort of electrons. It's that how exactly they move and what they care about is often complex and not available to the policymaker trying to say anticipate where Mars is gonna be if we're gonna do a a launch and try to land on Mars. So I think the the other piece of this is that physics is precise, economics is imprecise. So we're very good at predicting where Mars is gonna be. We're not good at predicting what GDP is gonna be and forget about 13 years from now, we're not good about predicting what's gonna be in six months. And, by the way, yeah, to be fair to economists, which I am one, some of that's because things come along you can't anticipate. It would be the equivalent of if, if there were so many meteors and weird astrophysics events that that Mars often went into a new orbit, no, no physicist would be stupid enough to claim they could tell where Mars was going to be in 13 years, so many days, hours and minutes, right? Uh, in economics, those things happen all the time. You get a coronavirus. So, of course, the predictions for GDP second quarter 2020 are wildly inaccurate, or third quarter 2020. That, that's No one expects economists to anticipate, say, the coronavirus. What's more troubling is that they don't anticipate often, say, the financial crisis of 2008, which isn't like a coronavirus. It, it was the culmination of a set of policy mistakes, psychological yearnings, um, <laughs> and other things. And... Um, We should not expect of economists what we expect of physicists. We often do that anyway, and we ask economists things they can't produce, but they say them. They answer them. You know, when I get called to say, well, what are interest rates going to be next year? I say, I don't know. Thank you very much. We're not interested in talking to you. (laughs) You want to hear from the economist who knows to three decimal points. Interest rates next year are going to be 6.234.
1: And nobody could possibly predict that. I think one of the interesting things is the extent – to which there doesn't seem to be kind of meta learning or learning writ large in certain fields so that you can have a circumstance where every single year there's a, you know, a Six Sigma event. And yet somehow the model, sort of the metal meta model that has to do with the level of certainty with which we're willing to make predictions doesn't adjust to accommodate for the fact that unexpected things are happening all the time.
0: Yeah. Most models are, you know, the the underlying idea behind most economic models is that tomorrow is going to be like today. And today is like yesterday. And of course it often is, you know, just like it gets warm in the summer and colder in the winter. There's some certain cyclical or trends sometimes that aren't cyclical, but long-term trends that persist for quite a while. And then they don't, (laughs) in which case, you're, you're, you're lost, you're at sea. I think as human beings, we find that very comforting that the trends persist for quite a while. It's hard to remember that they might be different. I like to quote Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who will point out that if I'm gonna put some money in the stock market, I would say, well, let's say I need it in a year. So I should probably worry about the possibility that a year from now the stock market will be lower and I'll lose money instead of gaining money. So I wonder how much money I could lose. Well, I know, I'll go back to the last 100 years and I'll see what was the worst year of the stock market in the last 100 years. And the answer is, uh, let's say it's 30-something percent, 20-something percent decrease. So now I know my the worst case scenario. And the answer, Taleb's point is, no, you don't. You just know what it was like in the last 100 years. We actually don't have data in the last 100 years, but for whatever it is, the longest time period we have available for. You know, the example I like to use is, I live in uh, Potomac, Maryland. I'm near Great Falls National Park. Fantastic place, very near an urban city, one of the most beautiful parks you can go to that's that close to Washington, D.C., or a major city. And you go to Great Falls and, and there's a pole in the ground and there are markings on the pole for how high the Potomac River rose in floods at various horrible times. And the highest one, let's say, I mean, it's shocking. It's fun to stand next to the pole. Not fun, but it's illuminating to stand next to the pole, the highest mark, let's say, is something like maybe 15 feet high. There's been a flood that would have submerged the ground you're standing on up to a height of water of 15 feet. So you say, well, I guess that's the worst flood. So if I'm going to build a a house, I want to make sure I build it high enough that it doesn't get flooded. I just have to build it 16 feet. And the answer is no, because there could be a 20-foot flood that you just aren't anticipating. And that is the most obvious thing when you say that somebody, goes, oh, I get that. And yet somehow, when people are investing in housing, in 2006 and five and four and seven. And people were saying, well, look, the the biggest decrease has ever been in housing prices in the United States has been X. So therefore, I'm safe. No, you weren't. And so I, I think it's a fascinating human tendency to overestimate those trends They're, and to be overconfident in their persistence. And I think a good economist is always aware that um, tomorrow might not be like today.
1: I think a uh- Part of the issue there stems from people's, people using, say, the wrong reference class or the wrong implied distribution as they're looking at a a set of data. Um, so they're, they're looking at this and they can possibly imagine that the, we might have a higher flood and it might be another foot higher or two higher, but unless you understand that the distribution of floods might be nothing at all normal, it might be a very skewed fat tailed distribution, then you don't really understand the probabilities for a much greater disaster. And in general, when you're talking with a very small set of data, then you also will have a hard time figuring out exactly what the distribution of events is going to look like. And I think we often assume that it's going to be more normal than it actually is.
0: Yeah, and of course, by normal, you mean the technical term in statistics. The other name for is Gaussian, which is the standard thing you'll see in a drawing of a distribution of height in the United States, right? Most men are around 5'8 to, to 6 feet tall. Uh, the average is about 5'10". But overwhelmingly, most men fall between five, eight, and six feet, but i'm five six I'm shorter, and we understand that that's part of the distribution too with the tails that intuition that you get where the average of that distribution is where most of the people are close to is the standard i'm trying to avoid to use the word normal is the standard way <laughs> we think about uh uncertainty and distribution of probabilities and it's extraordinarily misleading for certain economic and and other types of events. An example obviously being the pandemic. Most pandemics are gonna be unimportant. They're gonna be small events. That doesn't mean you should not be careful when there is a pandemic, because there could be one that is much more lethal, much more contagious. In fact, this isn't one of them, as far as we can tell. The coronavirus, it's very bad. It's much worse than the flu, but it might be twice as bad as the flu. We don't don't know for sure, but that's gonna be maybe a, a decent guess. But when the next one comes, and I think the next one people are gonna say, Well, the coronavirus, that was that was twice as bad as the flu. This new one won't be like that. Yes, it could not just it could it be like that, it could be ten times worse. And that's the essence of a of a quote fat tail distribution where the, the right hand is part of the distribution, the, the really horrific parts are the equivalent of a human being seventy feet tall. The tallest person I think in, in human history may be eight feet tall, a little over eight feet. Uh, you don't get 40 foot tall people. You can get that equivalent in a pandemic or a war. I mean, they're, every war is tragic, death is a horrible thing, but there hasn't been anything remotely like World War II since World War II. And that has caused some people like Steven Pinker and others to say, well, we've, we've tempered this process. This process is less, we've tamped it down And that's ignoring the possibility that the right-hand tail, which would be, say, a nuclear holocaust, will be much worse than World War II. And so, you know, I I think the lesson there is prudence and caution and respect for the fact that we don't fully understand these probabilities, and in particular, they don't come from normal distributions, so-called Gaussian distributions, where the tails at the left or the right are well understood, extremely rare, and never get above a certain amount. But these other types of distributions, it's very different. Particularly, you know, the mean, it's not going to be a good representation of what's going on. could be that there's almost no data points that are near the mean, unlike height. and height, the mean's 5'10 for men. Almost everybody's within an inch or two of 5'10. Almost, you know, 80% of the male population of the United States. But 80% of the population is not within the mean average wealth of the United States. The average wealth of the United States is skewed far to the right because a handful of very large wealth holders pull the mean up, and the mean is a very bad indicator of, quote, average in the everyday sense of the word. We use the word mean and average interchangeably in statistics, but average has come to mean eh, typical. But in these fat tail distributions,
1: typical, the average is not typical. Yeah, and typical may not even exist per se, right? There may not be an example of that. I want to pick up on that idea of caution and see if that's related to one of the things that I've heard you say a number of times on the podcast, uh, which is that markets fail, use markets. The idea here being that. Um, well, for example, when I was, uh, I have had uh, some exposure to formal economics classes and a basic teaching there was that markets fail and therefore we need the government to step in and fix things. Uh, but your, your framing is different. Uh, what I like about it is that it upsets our, our natural tendency to automatically reach for the tool that we've been told will make things better. Again, because the label on it says fixes bad markets, assuming that it will do that. Um, but your framing of of markets fail, use markets also has a certain hint of fatalism to it, as in, sure, the market has failed, but it's the best we can do, so there you have it. I wonder if you want to maybe expand on that and say, to what extent are markets all that we have, or are there other forces that we could bring to bear in the case of what's pointed to as a market failure?
0: That's a great question. Uh, First of all, I quote it all the time, but it's not my quote. It comes from Arnold Kling, an essay he wrote, but you described it very well. And I certainly generally am sympathetic to Kling's view, but I'm not an anarchist. I don't believe that we should leave everything to markets. I think courts are a good idea. I think police are a good idea. I think it's okay to have an army. I wouldn't want to leave national defense or private security to the market. And by the market, I also would include non-monetary, non-profit-driven activities. So I think the public school system in the United States, K through 12, is is abysmal in poor parts of American cities and a a total failure, a a betrayal of the children and poor families in those cities. And when I say I want to replace the public school system with a private school system, I don't mean a profitable one necessarily, although I'm okay with profit-driven schools potentially. But I'm also open to the possibility that someone would start a school that was scholarship-based for poor children that would not be a government school, but be a private school, and not even a charter school, but a real private school. Uh, They're all over India, for example. India has tons of private schools for poor children where parents pay very little. And I would like to see in the United States, in places where public schools have failed, a place where parents pay very little, but others contribute to help compensate the teachers uh, to make that attractive for them to work there. So I think a lot of what we do economically in the United States is unnecessary to be done by the government, but not everything. I have no problem with there being regulations against pollution. Uh, I have no problem with, uh, as I said, with courts, with government roads. I don't think we should have private roads. We have some private roads now, but we... I wouldn't say all government roads should be replaced by private roads. I think there are many things the government does well, like those things better than the private sector. But I think there are many things the government does poorly that the private sector could do better. And I think the secret to bring us full circle back to our earlier point, a lot of some of the interventions that look like they're designed to help people often don't. And I would rather see private initiatives, often philanthropic, designed to um, do those in a different way, and I off, and it's going to often be the case that private institutions, private solutions to those problems, are more response responsive to to their intentions than the government ones. That's really the essence of the. Insight markets, fail. Use markets. You can make an ex- a case that and economists have that, well, you see, since you don't capture all the gains from being more educated, it, being educated makes you a better voter. I'm not sure that's true, by the way, but that's the claim. And it's more pleasant to live in a society where other people are educated. Eh, I'm not so sure, but it's nice to be able to talk about, say, Shakespeare with other people because they've also read Shakespeare. Even though they'll have o- their own incentive to read Shakespeare, maybe it's not large enough they won't take into account the pleasure they're going to give other people from learning Shakespeare. So there's an argument that education is underprovided. And so we need a government solution to that. And that solution could be a subsidy. It could be government provision like we have in K through 12. And my general sense is I, I think it'd be better if we just left it alone. In particular, in that, in, in that case, I think would get better schools for poor people, not, not worse ones. You know, a lot of people say, oh, gov- private schools, only the rich would get schooling. I don't think so. Right now, even now, poor people get free schooling, meaning they don't have to pay out of pocket. It's so bad that people are willing to donate money to give scholarships to kids to get out of those schools even when they have a, quote, free alternative. So the quote's because it's just free out of pocket, not literally free because somebody's paying for them through taxes. So, you know, I think um, a lot of times the formal creation of, quote, market failures, and and, uh, it's just, it's not as helpful as as people claim it is, I think, in, in designing good public policy.
1: Well, and certainly it's the case, as you mentioned earlier, unintended consequences are always a possibility and um, maybe there's some caution uh, necessary before you advocate that a particular invent- intervention come about. I thought about this a lot uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, it seemed like people were very quick to rush into the idea of lockdowns being a possible solution without proof that they would work without much of a you know an evidentiary set and most certainly without thinking about what the consequences might be and it seems like a lot of the time it's not going to be clear beforehand exactly what negative consequences might come about from a particular intervention, but it might be reasonable to say that because this is a a brand new thing and because it is most certainly going to be highly impactful and creates a wide range of incentives, that there are going to be those kinds of... Fill out effects that the riots may not be a direct consequence of the lockdowns, and it may not be something that you could have predicted beforehand, but certainly you could have predicted that some measure of social unrest is going to come out of putting tens of millions of people out of jobs and destroying businesses and wrecking the kind of social, everyday social interactions that are part of everyday life. Look- I wonder why. There isn't more of a culture of immediately pushing back against such bold proposals. Is it just that fear overcomes the natural tendency to caution? What do you think about that?
0: Actually, I think there's been remarkably little social unrest. You know, the social unrest we're seeing is mostly a response to the George Floyd tragedy. That's interesting in and of itself, because that was a case to me that was an extraordinary moment in intellectual life, because... We were told we couldn't get together for funerals. You couldn't get together for religious services. Government made some serious restrictions, but protesting somehow was fine. And, you know, once that happened, I think it forces you to realize that this science of external spillover effects maybe is not so really religiously held by people when it's not convenient for them. And I think we all do that, but I think it's important to point that out. But I think, you know, this lockdown thing is extremely complicated and tricky because, some of the lockdown came voluntarily. Lockdown maybe is the wrong word. are called self-quarantining. People self-quarantined out of fear. Very reasonable. Um, some people, you know, stopped doing a whole bunch of things. Some people stopped doing a few things, and we all made our assessment. and And I, there's something to be said for an adult society, meaning respectful of people's agency and sense of responsibility to make their own choices. Most economists disagree with that. They said, No, no, no. This is different because. There's spillover effects that we were talking about earlier, and you could infect other people. So therefore, that justifies the government taking a more severe set of restrictions. There is a case to be made for it, of course, that we could imagine a plague sufficiently contagious and fatal that we might agree to that. The question is, was this one of those plagues? Was this that kind of virus? And the answer appears to be, maybe not. Now, again, it's not an open and shut question. But as you point out, and I think this is the hard part to remember, it was very easy for people to take into account death counts, reasonable to worry about it, very important. People don't, bad thing that people die. But th- the consequences of being cautious also were very negative. As you say, businesses were lost, people lost their jobs, children all over the world are losing education, they're, um, uh, they're not going to school, uh, people are scrambling, mostly rich people are scrambling to find alternatives. Poor people can't, it's really sad. And those are really serious costs. And the biggest cost I suspect will be the political consequences of the people who were told they couldn't go to work or that their businesses would fail or that the businesses that worked for them, that they worked for couldn't hire them, couldn't keep them employed. Uh, Those people are gonna be angry, rightfully so, that they were abused. Because uh, a lot of people like me, I, I didn't pay a price for this. I kept getting my salary. I work from home. I'm very fortunate. I'm very grateful for that. But the barista and the, the waiter and others who couldn't work. Now, some of that's not the lockdown's fault. It's the coronavirus's fault. It's the fact that people weren't going to go to restaurants whether the government allowed it or not. There were certainly not as many. You know, I think this is going to be a fascinating time coming up over the next couple of years as we assess how, were we, were we too cautious? Were we not cautious enough? What role did masks play in America versus Asia? Should we have worn masks sooner? Should we have let people make their own choices like they did in Sweden? They didn't lock down, but they did plenty of self-quarantining. If you look at the data, you can see how Swedes stopped traveling a lot. (laughs) There's a big reduction in mobility based on cell phone data in Sweden even though they, quote, quote, didn't do anything. Of course they did things. They were just privately done through individual choices. So there's going to be a fascinating aftermath of this as people tell stories about you know whose fault it was and what we should have done and what we could have done. And we're also going to find out, by the way, how many people really died.
1: I don't think we'll ever find that out. I think that the, the data are way too corrupt by be corrupt. A, a number of, of factors, including, and this is something that I can't believe there weren't economists just shrieking at the top of their lungs, and maybe there were some, but the direct incentivization of recording certain, uh, you know, cases.
0: It's surprising me how little that's been talked about. I don't know how important it is. It seems to be important. I mean, the reason I, I think about it is that, you know, our, 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 uh, our caseload in the United States, I just looked at the data this morning, the caseload in the United States, in, with the best data we have, I mean, it'd be totally accurate, but the caseload has been declining for five weeks, five weeks is a long time. Uh, the deaths haven't been declining much. They kind of keep going. Now, it could be it's just long delays and lags, it's possible. That, that isn't the case in the earlier data. In the earlier data, there was a pretty good correlation that two to three weeks after changes in the caseload, the death load, the deaths responded. But here we have five weeks later, very little decrease in death. We've learned a lot. So we're better at keeping people alive once they get it. We know that. We have better techniques, better understanding of what to do, what not to. And yet somehow the death rate keeps somewhat similar. And the other part that's strange is that the age distribution of death hasn't changed. So it's still uh, people over the age of uh, 90% of the deaths are people over the age of 55. That hasn't changed. Uh, it hasn't changed much within 55 to 65, 65, and I'm thinking, how is that possible? In the beginning, I understand that death rates should have been high for older people because they didn't realize how vulnerable they were. We've known for four months, three months, how vulnerable old people are, whatever the however long we've known a long time. And so, people like me, I'm 65, we stay, we're being more careful. Is it? But they're still dying at the same rate. So it it is possible. We don't know this, but I think we will know it actually. It's possible that some of the deaths that are being called COVID deaths, because they're called probable COVID deaths now, are actually deaths that probably tragically would have happened anyway, because all people are vulnerable to all kinds of other related problems. And when we look at the excess deaths, which is the right measure, when we look and see uh, what are the death rates today relative to the last say five years in the month of August, we're gonna get a better count uh how many were really probably attrib- attributable to covid and that'll be very informative and then of course it could be higher because people are afraid to go to the hospital they're even though they're driving less and driving more recklessly it's, it's it's a lot of stuff going on there but i think we'll learn something about what actually happened in uh 2020 it may take us a while but we'll, we'll get some information
1: on it I I certainly hope so, though my suspicion is that this will end up being a little bit like the Great Depression in that we are still now litigating exactly what caused it and what the result of the state interventions was in it. And um, in, in my view, we will probably end up with the same thing where you have something that turned out to be absolutely awful and yet the interventions that were lauded at the time are still in the history books claimed to have done something of good despite the fact that from my view the the interventions were probably not all that effective or perhaps in some ways counterproductive and of course we do have direct evidence of counterproductive interventions like sending sick people to you know, to back to nursing homes. homes.
0: Yeah, we also had the opening month or so of the virus. We were told not to wear masks because they were uh, that could make it worse. And then that we were told actually that was a lie. We, we 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 lied to you because we were afraid other people would be medical people couldn't get masks. Well, that's not a good idea in a democracy. It's a really bad idea, and it may have been extremely costly in in helping to spread the disease because people were discouraged from wearing masks, which is a very inexpensive way. Voluntarily, I don't believe in mandating mask use, voluntarily letting people choose to follow a piece of information that could be helpful. And maybe I've been a little over optimistic for someone who's usually uh, less so. It, it could be that this is just going to be another of example of competing narratives where, you know, for a long time people said the Great Depression was ended by the New Deal. Then they realized, eh, it's not really much evidence for that. It was ended by World War II. Well, actually, even that, maybe not so much evidence. <laughs> so, this could be one of those ones where uh, the narratives just keep, you know, both sides think they have all the facts on their side, and they just keep telling the same story.
1: Could very well be. I want a to, topic of the pandemic is in some ways endlessly fascinating, but I want to move on a little bit to something perhaps related, perhaps not, to something that I've heard you criticize on your show, and that I'm highly critical of myself, and that is behavioral economics. Maybe you could start by letting listeners know what is usually considered under that umbrella of behavioral economics.
0: So the standard economic model of human behavior that behavioral economics is critiquing, we'll call the, sometimes called the neoclassical model, rational economic man, rational economic human being, people are self-interested although self-interest could include charitable motives. It could be I'm self-interested, I get pleasure from seeing you helped through charity or through a donation of blood or to a sick person. So it's not selfishness, it's self-interested. The standard model is I have a set of goals and I pursue them rationally. I trade off different things I care about depending on how much it costs to acquire them or satisfy those desires. And that's the standard economics view of human beings. Uh, We're purposive. We enjoy many things, but we can't have everything we want So, because we have a finite amount of income, and so we have to make choices, and those choices are, are driven by our desires and our income constraints. That's the sort of standard textbook model of, of economic behavior. The behavioral economists came along, and of course, you could argue that Adam Smith was the first behavioral economist, That he came before the neoclassical model. Adam Smith in the 18th century said, you know, we're very prone to self-deception, the behavioral economics of the oh, 1970s onward, identified with uh, Kahneman Tversky and others, Richard Thaler, they came along and they said, look, we can put people in laboratories and they act very irrationally. This idea that they that they only care about maximizing their goals subject to constraints, that's, that's an inaccurate picture of what actual human beings do. And the, the neoclassical economists, which I used to be one and I'm still one at heart, although I'm have some behavioral parts to me. The Neoclassical economists wrote, well, of course they're not perfect. Of course, he, people make mistakes. Of course, they can self deceive, but in general, they still are purposive and they try to maximize their well being. Vernon Smith, uh, who won the Nobel Prize, his response was yes, people in experiments make lots of irrational decisions, but markets push them toward the rational decisions. You don't have to have everyone be rational or purposive. And Gary Becker also argued this. You you don't have to have everyone be like a perfect calculating machine. So for example, if people are trying to find a good deal, that tends to push prices toward a single price. That is if there's a really high price for an object and a really low price, only a fool would would pay the high price. So demand tends to go toward the low price, away from the high price, that brings down the high price, pushes up the low price till they get closer together. Sellers then tend to charge the so-called market price. That's the standard economist view that, you know, that Vernon Smith was, was pushing uh, as, a, as a defense. So my take on it is that, unfortunately, many, many of the behavioral economists critique of economics, of the sort of standard rational model, uh, a lot of those critiques have not held up in replication. So some, some experimental results are simply not true. You know, somebody does a study, they find something that seems to cast the standard economic model in doubt, and, but it turns out when we try to replicate it, it doesn't work so well. Uh, so that's one challenge, one problem with behavioral economics. The other problem is that, uh, this is a meta problem, which is that a lot of times, similar to our earlier discussion about markets fail-use markets, some behavioral economists say, well, People aren't rational, so we have to intervene for them to make sure they act in their own self-interest. And of course, the economists, to me, the right response to that is, well, who are these perfect people who are going to be making decisions <laughs> for me with in perfect, perfect information that I don't have? You're telling me I'm flawed. You're going to let someone else who's flawed make my, make decisions for me?
1: No, no, they have they have PhDs, Russ. They're not flawed. Yeah.
0: Fine. Well, they're saints, too. They're public-spirited. They, they only care about making the world a better place. They don't care about themselves. They have no special interests, no cronies, no friends to take care of. They only care about me. God bless them. That's called a family, by the way, and I'm all for it. I'm really a big fan of paternalism in the family or maternalism. I'm, I, you know, uh, That's fine. But having it come out of Washington, not so fine. I'm not so happy about that because I don't think it, it works so well. I don't think they always have my interest at heart. The other thing to say is that I think people aren't perfect. Just like markets don't always work perfectly. Yeah, okay, now what? I want to start with the idea that we should respect the choices people make. One other piece of this that's worth talking about is that of course, a lot of things that look irrational to a academic turn out to be more rational than they appear. So, you know, people want to get published, they like to draw attention to themselves. So they're prone to publishing studies that make dramatic claims about human nature and so on. Some of those turn out to be flawed because they misunderstand what's really at stake. They misunderstand, you know, what it's like to have skin in the game and be the person who that decision is being made by. And they actually are... are are acting in their own self-interest. You know, one of these one way to think about this to bring all the th- a number of things we've been talking about is that, well, you know, in uncertainty, you should maximize your expected value, your expected utility. And that's a very common view in economics. It is a model of human behavior, but I would not define rationality as maximizing your expected value or your the expected outcome as a mathematical average, we care a lot about the downside risk. We care about, about the worst case scenario. We might not want to weight that equally with the average or the upside gains. So the fact that people are more cautious than, than the model might predict doesn't make them irrational, it might make them rational and the academic a fool. So those are all the, you know, these are some of my thoughts on the on the current state of the conversation.
1: I think that gets at what I see as one of the biggest problems with behavioral economics. And I see that it broadly as a project to point to human beings and say, you are so irrational. That's a caricature. But I, I see think that a lot of the work in behavioral economics is essentially about showing that we can't have these kinds of models or we can't, as you say, let people make their own decisions because they're so bad at it. And I think that a lot of it stems from maybe one of two confusions. Either the person running the experiment just doesn't understand the difference between their own knowledge, what's, you know, in their head and what a study participant might reasonably assume about the circumstance that they're thrown into in a laboratory, or they're confusing irrationality with a heuristic, which isn't a perfect fit for every occasion. And I think that's a bit what you got at there. I I used this example some years back at statistics blog. And, uh, you know, imagine that you had a neighbor who you know casually, and they come to you on a Friday night, and they're headed out of town for the weekend. And On short notice and they have a dog and they want you to watch that dog for the weekend. Now you might, are you willing to do that if they offer you a hundred dollars and say, Hey, I know this is an inconvenience for you. Here's a hundred dollars. Will you watch my dog for me, please? You might say yes. You might say no. But then if instead they offered you a thousand dollars or five thousand dollars to watch their dog for the weekend, you know, what do you do now? You know, from an economist in a lab point of view, anyone who would do this for a hundred but wouldn't do it for 5,000 is completely irrational. They're nuts. And yet, there might be some very good reasons there. There might be hidden information. They might be working on a, a different heuristic from the, you know, more money is better. Uh, clearly, that's rational view that a behavioral economist might have, Right.
0: Well, it reminds me of the physicist, true story, hard to believe, but the physicist who allegedly um, was asked to take a suitcase across the international border from a stranger. And uh, when his friend suggested that maybe it wouldn't be a good idea to take a suitcase across the international border, because maybe you're being asked to be a drug smuggler without your knowledge, the physicist said, oh, well, don't be a fool. I'm going to open it to see what's in it which he did saw that nothing was in it. This was allegedly a a suitcase belonging to a allegedly attractive woman who purported to have romantic interest in the physicist. And uh, actually it wasn't a woman. It was probably a man masquerading as a woman. And she wasn't interested in him. She, he, she, she wanted him to take drugs across the, I think it was Colombian or Venezuelan border. I can't remember in Latin America, but when he told his colleague, well, of course I'm going to open it. And he did there was nothing in it and when he crossed the border and was arrested and they found drugs in the lining of the suitcase (laughs) you know that was a mistake if you had been told well what could go wrong it's it's an attractive person you're interested in romantically the heuristic which says this is probably not going to turn out the way it looks is probably a good heuristic something that looks better than it might actually be is probably a mistake in fact i heard a recent story uh, about a uh, a guy who was given a five pound bag of cocaine in the eighties. And he decided ultimately to, it was supposed to belong to someone else again, supposedly. And the other person said, oh, no, 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 you, you deal with it. You take whatever. And he decided that the prudent thing to do would be to flush it down the toilet, which he did. He said, it was the smartest decision I ever made in my life. I was listening to this on a podcast called Wind to Change, which is an extraordinary podcast. It's a series of eight episodes. So he said, that was the greatest decision I ever made. And you're right. A really bad economist would say, you flushed five pounds of cocaine down the toilet. You threw away money. And no, nobody throws away money. Like, even with the risk. I mean, how big a risk it, could it be? Well, it's easy for you to say in your shoes for that person, they decided the risk was too high. I love your point that information that the outsider is, quote, sure of is often very different from the information available to the insider. But even when it's the same, how it's perceived and how what's important to the insider, the decision maker, rather than the outside observer, is, is another important difference that is often just ignored. As if, you know, I, I know all you care about is money. Maybe the person thought it was wrong tip for people to use drugs. They just don't want to be a party to that. So there's so much more to it than often than just the information, that, as you point out, that's available to the outside observer trying to make a conclusion about the rationality of a decision.
1: I think one of the most interesting light bulb moments for me, many, many years ago, I was doing a story about essentially drug selling in Chicago, uh, where I had lived. And the person who I was working with on the, the story, the editor, he he said, oh, yeah, that risk is a transaction cost. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, no, transaction costs are what you have to pay to get something. And he's like, no, risk is a transaction cost. And just... Opening my mind to the possibility that that concept might be much, much broader than I had previously seen, it surprises me to what extent it seems like even economists are not able to wrap their head around the idea that there might be these hidden variables that effectively are transaction costs that they're not considering when they look at the activity of a particular participant and go, why are you doing that? That's irrational.
0: I think it's a general problem in a wide range of academic disciplines that we tend to focus on the data we have. We're aware intellectually that we don't have all the data, right? We know that it's just easy to forget that. So what we observe, it might look irrational, but we forget that we don't observe everything. And, and you think, well, what do you mean you don't remember that? Of course you remember you don't know everything, but it's hard to remember sometimes. The pandemic is a perfect example of it, right? We can measure deaths. You can measure losses in, in employment. But how about despair? We don't have a dis- you know, I like to say despair is not in the data set. Does that count? Well, it should count, but it's not measured. So it tends not to get counted. So I think that's a big problem in all social science generally.
1: And that we just generally were optimizing for the metrics and the data that we have. And if we don't have a measurement of that, then perhaps we're not taking into account the value that that might have to individual Absolutely. participants. Absolutely, no? yeah. yeah. As a a final topic, I want to talk about religion and how your own religion impacts the way you see the world. But before we go into that, I want to note a curious pattern among the most prominent advocates for free market capitalism and among the polar opposite of Socialism and communism, the number of Jews is highly disproportionate. I could personally name perhaps a dozen Jews who've been key to the development of free market thought. I'm sure you could name several dozen more. And on the other side, the presence of Jews in the communist movement is unmistakable. This pattern, in fact, has played out even in my own family. My grandmother was a labor organizer who spent some time in hiding from uh, the government during the Red Scare, whereas I am decidedly on the other side of the spectrum and fairly hostile to all forms of state socialism. So I'm wondering, what do you think accounts for this draw among Jews to the what might be considered by uh, folks in the middle as fairly extreme ideologies on one side or the other?
0: Well, I think it's a little bit of a selection bias there. I think a lot of Jews are in the middle too, but They don't make much noise and you tend not to hear of them. But Jews are widely represented in the tales, which is what your point is at the extremes. You know, one explanation comes from, I've heard from Dennis Prager and Joseph Telushkin. I think it's in a book they wrote together. It's um, the Jews can't sleep, so they don't let anyone else sleep either. Meaning Jews tend to be very passionate about uh, what's called in Hebrew, tikkun olam, repairing the world. We might not always agree on the right way to do that. So some people think the world's best repaired by intervening from the top down and tinkering with it and tweaking it and shoving it around sometimes, not so twe- tweaking, more dramatically change it. And at the same time, there's a lot of folks who say, well, actually the best way to make the world a better place is to mostly leave it alone and let people pursue their own interests peacefully that as long as they don't interfere with other people. So you'd find Jews on both sides of that. And they're passionate about it. I think partly, for cultural reasons, I the best I could, as I can understand it, because they want to make the world a better place. So we're troubled. Jews have a long history of being a thorn uh, in the side of power it, and being a conscience to the world. We were joined to be a light unto the nations. We brought the world ethical monotheism. You know, there's a famous cartoon. I don't know who wrote it. Maybe it's just a joke that spread. But you know, when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, in the joke, he turns to the people, he says, he says, I have good news and bad news. The good news is I got it down to 10 commandments. The bad news is adultery stays. <laughs> so, you know, in the old days before religion, maybe there were a lot of rules. There were, there were social rules and norms, presumably, but ethics, conscience, morals, people were free to kind of pursue their own self-interest in total uh, unrestrained fashion. And, one of the aspects, there's a lot of aspects of religion, but one of them is it says, actually, you have responsibilities to the people around you and to, to the God above, and therefore, you can't do everything you want. Well, that's no fun. Come on. So, you know, that's, that's another way of saying that Jews can't sleep and they won't let anyone else sleep either. They're constantly trying to nudge you to say, hey, this is what you ought to be doing. You know, Isaiah, Samuel, Amos, Jeremiah, they're all about, hey, you're doing the wrong thing. Fix up your act. Well, a lot of people don't want to hear that. So Jews, you know, it's a it's a tough role historically. But in the modern time, we still kind of we still are out there doing that, telling people, giving people advice, not as Jews per se, you know, not as not as Jews, not using Jewish say theology, but certainly Jews are passionate about trying to make the world a better place. A lot of a lot of Jews are anyway.
1: Interesting. Uh, hadn't thought about that possibility, I sometimes wonder if it just has to do with the culture of argumentativeness too in general and that bringing you to an extreme. But I haven't thought too much about that idea either. I, I wonder though, in terms of you personally, I'm not particularly observant, you are. To what extent do you think that your, your faith has changed the way you see the world and the way you do your work?
0: Uh, It's hard to answer that question, honestly, because I think there's a temptation to be self-congratulatory and and to cook up reasons for why I do what I do without really being accurate about them, because that's what we do as human beings, right? We're very good at telling ex-post narratives for why we do what we do that aren't self-interested when they really are. (laughs) So, you know, someone asks, why'd you do that? Oh, I I was, I know, I couldn't, I I couldn't, I couldn't get to the store. I just... uh, But in fact, I didn't wanna go to the store, but I can't admit that to myself. And so I, you know, people, we lie to ourselves all the time, Um, which is, that's the behavioral side of me. I think self-deception is a big challenge in in human experience. So I don't know if I can answer that question fairly or honestly, you know, it has, you don't have to be religious to try to be a better person. It's easy to go through life just pursuing your own self-interest oblivious to people around you. If you do that, you won't have as many friends as you might otherwise have, but you it, it can be done and you can, you can exploit other people in various settings and not pay a serious price for it. You'll pay some price, but not a ser- necessarily a serious price. So, you know, in, in its best nature, its best state, religion is designed to get you out of yourself. Uh, and Lamott says it well not Jewish, Anne Lamott says, but, but a very Jewish idea. She says, God's name is not me. Kind of sums it up, right? It's like, it's not all about you. It's not all about me. It's about something maybe more important than just me. Of course you find that idea in Adam Smith's theory of Moral sentiments too. So again, you don't have to be religious to see the virtue or the the, the value of getting outside yourself and not seeing yourself as the center of the universe in theory, religion should help you do that more readily. And I like the idea, I don't know if I embody it, but I like the idea that as we get older, we become better people. We work at refining ourselves. We try to not just repair the world around us, which we mentioned earlier, but repair our own character flaws, our own mistakes, and try to become better parents, better children, better friends, uh, better human beings. And so to me, that's what one of the most valuable parts of religion is, is it, it spurs me to that. Whether it has been a, the real reason that I try to do better, whether I actually do better or just fool myself into thinking I'm doing, trying to do better. I can't really say, cause that would just, that would be um, epistemologically difficult, but I think that's the goal. That's the
1: idea. I think it, it certainly can be the case that we can be black boxes to ourselves and you talk a lot about storytelling and the role uh, that it plays. And I've come actually, I have a data science background and have dug in over the years into a number of models. And I think that I've come to realize that to some extent, we've plucked all the low hanging fruit of causality. And that to make additional gains in understanding the world, we actually need to Back away somewhat from the idea of causality and just treat almost everything like a black box, and think in terms of what does this correlate with. Which, of course, in some people's mind is a cardinal sin. You know, correlation is not causality. What are you doing? But in some ways, I think that we need to think more about what seems to entail other things. There was a probabilist, uh, James, who had this idea that statistics was partial entailment, and. That was all it was. All correlations fall into that category. These are partial entailments. And if you can back away from the idea that you need to tell a coherent story, you can just look at these things and say, well, this thing tends to lead to this other thing, or this thing tends to have this consequence. And over the years, I've become a lot more enamored of the idea that that's maybe what we need to do, including with ourselves is say, what you know what is the kind of behavior I want to embody, and not try to come up with a story about what's going to cause that behavior to happen, but just to look at ourselves as a black box and say, well, when I wake up early in the morning, I tend to do this better. And there may not be any particularly good story about why that's the case, or if I skip breakfast, or if I have breakfast. But if we, you know, let go of the storytelling and in fact, in some ways, perhaps maybe some of the moralism and just try to get at what are the good positive consequences we want and what kind of behaviors correlate with that, that, you know, that we can get much further. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, that's a really complicated, interesting idea. I, don't, I think the black box idea that, that I don't fully understand myself, I think, is, is a valuable one that I'm not going to try to tell a complex story of causation because actually I'm prone to seeing correlation as causation. I'm going to sort of flip your theory on its head for a minute. You know, I'm prone to seeing correlation as causation, so therefore maybe it'd be better to not try to find causation and just, like you say, maybe just live with correlation. You can also invoke the placebo effect there because while it may not be true that eating breakfast makes me more productive or kinder to my family or whatever is the thing you're trying to get more of maybe if i think it does it'll be good so i don't understand the co- the correlation but that's good enough for me i'm just gonna eat breakfast every day and then i'll, I'll use this placebo but that would work with fake causation story too so i don't know I, I do think the black box metaphor though can be helpful. I think we're prone in general to overestimating our understanding of of the complexity of the world to bring us back to where we started. And recognizing that is always a good idea. And that black box is one way to think to make the help you do that.
1: Excellent. Russ, thanks for coming on the filter. Had a great
0: time. Thanks, man. Great job.
1: Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.